this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. On this episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, episode 56, the January 2019 episode, we're going to hear the first two chapters of Sailing the Ogre, the log of a woman wanderer annotated by Mabel M. Stock. I've been fairly tight-lipped in the last few episodes, um, so the guests could tell their stories and I could tell the stories of other sailors. But in our third anniversary episode on February 2000. 19. I'm going to talk about a new direction for the podcast and the YouTube channel, which you'll definitely want to hear. But first, let's celebrate the story of Mabel Stock. Mabel Stock was born into a publishing family, and her brother, Ralph Stock, has written many books and many screenplays for Hollywood. But she was a a frequent traveler with her younger brother, Ralph. And Ralph bought a boat in England, a 45-foot gaff-rigged sloop that they fixed up for cruising right after World War one in World War One, at the start of World War One, Mabel and Ralph were traveling around the South Pacific, and their travels were stopped in Tahiti because of the hostilities in World War One, and they went back to England. And their appetites were whetted for cruising under sail because they had cruised on a cruising sailboat during that set of travels right before World War One. Mabel wrote a book, which I am pleased to say that I edited, and Ox River Publishing is producing the first paperback and ebook versions and audiobook versions of Mabel M. Stock's book, it's called Sailing the Ogre, A Log of a Woman Wanderer, Annotated. And it's a very significant book because it's one of the earliest accounts by a woman of cruising under sail. And it's really one of the most early accounts of long-distance cruising there is. So you could look back to the accounts by Jack London or the account by Joshua Slocum or the account by Captain Voss, which we saw uh, part of that uh, in Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora, which is also available on Amazon. That Those are really the only big accounts of cruising in a sailing yacht. And then you get to the accounts of Mabel and her brother. And I'm pleased to have this early account from the woman's perspective of what it was like to cruise under sail between 1919 and 1920. So almost 100 years ago, uh, they did this cruise where they sailed the length of the Western Hemisphere, and it was an amazing trip. They're uh, a fun-loving bunch, Ralph, his sister Mabel, and their friend, and they also took on some interesting passengers along the way, and it's just a great story. I'm making this book available to patrons at the captain level, which for a limited time is uh, the $5 pledge level. Uh, It's a limited time offer. It's also a limited number offer because there's a limited number of captain spots. Uh, And if you're a captain level, you get actually four audiobooks. You get my groundbreaking book, 
How to Sail Around the World Part-Time. You get Sailing to Treasure Island by Captain Voss. You get Slow Boat to Cuba, about the first leg of our part-time around the world trip. And then you get Sailing the Ogre, The Log of a Woman Wanderer by Mabel M. Stock, all with a $5 pledge. But you're going to get the first two chapters of this. Patrons of the podcast at at lower levels will get chapters three through five, and then chapters six through nine in the editor's note and biography are exclusively to captain and higher-level patrons. So that includes admiral, senior associate producer patrons, that includes corporate sponsor patrons, and that includes title sponsor and executive producer star patrons. If you like to read books uh, and not listen to them, then you can get Sailing the Ogre, A Log of a Woman Wanderer, on Amazon at all its country sites, both in paperback and ebook version exclusively. And on January the 3rd, which is the day after I'm posting this, I'm going to make the book free. Then I'm going to raise the price 99 cents on the 4th, $1.99 on the 5th, $2.99 on the 6th. on the 7th, and to $4.99 is low introductory price on the 8th of January, 2019. At all times are Pacific times, that is UTC minus 8, so California time. Here's the book. Enjoy. Sailing the Ogre, The Log of a Woman Wanderer by Mabel M. Stock, annotated London William Heinemann Limited, first published January 1923, dedicated to the brother in the boat, without whom the cruise would have been impossible. Read by Linus Wilson, edited and annotated by Linus Wilson. You write 2019 Linus Wilson. Oxford Publishing, Vermilion Advisory Services, all rights reserved. Lafayette, Louisiana. No portion of this recording may be reproduced without the express written permission of Linus Wilson, Ox River Publishing, Vermilion Advisory Services. Chapter 1. Introduces the crew, describes our floating home, we take a passenger, we set sail, arrival at our first port. Having been told by a number of people that I have accomplished rather an unusual thing for a woman, it has occurred to me that some of my own sex may be interested to read of my experiences during a 12,000-mile cruise as hand aboard a 21-ton cutter during her voyage from Brixham, Devonshire to the South Sea Islands. To begin with, I must point out that the keynote of our undertaking was economy, for I do not think such an incompunious trio ever set sail on a long cruise. Ever since the war had nipped in the bud a former enterprise of this kind, it had been a long-cherished dream to sail our own ship through the South Sea Islands. As we were afraid of growing old and decrepit before accumulating really sufficient means for the undertaking, we made up our minds to start without them and stand by the consequences. Before going farther, I had better introduce the ship's company. It consisted of my brother, to whom the ogre belonged, and who bore all expenses of fitting out, harbor dues, running expenses, etc., 
It included Steve, a friend who relied solely on his army gratuity and pension as a wounded officer, and myself, the owner of an infinitesimal income. In order to accumulate enough money before departure, I resorted to the selling of a few sticks of furniture I possessed, pieces of jewelry, and even some of my music. As I could be of no use to the boys while fitting out the ogre, I took a most unpleasant position as nurse companion to an exacting old invalid lady in order to save the expenses of board and lodging during the four months before sailing. By this means, I scraped and saved enough to buy a modest trousseau, pay my share of ship's stores and trade goods and start with little under a hundred pounds sterling the ogre deserves a short description as a more suitable craft could not have been found for our purpose she was built in norway as a lifeboat for the fishing fleet and sold to a man who fitted her below as a yacht she was forty seven foot overall fifteen foot beam seven foot six inches draft cutter rigged with a thirteen horsepower auxiliary engine her spars were enormously stout and strong and her sails of exceptionally good canvas below decks she was like a compact little flat with forecastle, saloon, sleeping cabin, and engine room, each leading into the other with no alleyways to take up unnecessary space. When both hatches were open, a draught could pass straight through from stem to stern, which was a boon in hot weather. In the forecastle were two built-in bunks, one of which Steve occupied. The cooking, such as it was, was done there on primus stove screw to the table, which formed the top of one of the freshwater tanks, holding 150 gallons. Lockers fan along each side and serve as seats. The cupboards would have gladdened the heart of any housewife. There were four of them. One was for crockery, with grooves, ledges, and circles cut in the shelves to hold the various articles firm in a seaway. One was for pots and pans, fitted in the same manner. One was for retail stores, as we call them, and one was a larder. The saloon looked like a charming little sitting room when the loose covers of the blue and green Liberty Cretone were on the cushions. The mast case jutting out from the forward end formed a cozy corner on one side the piano stood across the bulkhead between the cabin and saloon and one of the four commodious cupboards formed a little sideboard on which reposed our smoking impedimenta and minute rum barrel made of polished elm with brass bands and a tap tall lockers lined each side of the saloon the tops of which served as shelves for books writing cases and that sort of thing the table stood to one side allowing ample floor space the sleeping cabin upholstered in blue and white was occupied by my brother and myself and i had one built-in bunk on each side with divans beneath containing spacious lockers Curtains that slipped along rods ran each side of the washstand from one bulkhead to the other, so that whoever desired to wash could do so at any time in complete privacy, in spite of the bunks being occupied. Two hanging wardrobes completed the furniture. Of course, all cushion covers and pretties were packed away while making passages. Both saloon and cabin were enameled white. 
the engine room contained the oil tank, all gear, tools, another freshwater tank holding 150 gallons, and the 13-horsepower engine. Such was our floating home. About a month before we sailed, my brother wrote for me to meet Steve and himself in London to procure passports and purchase 30 pounds sterling worth of trade goods that we had decided to take with us. I had already given notice to my old lady, but as she was really ill at the time, she always made a point of being inconvenient. I could not leave for some days. Meanwhile, the boys had done the deed, and when I met them, they showed me the still unpaid bills of the wholesale firms to which they had been recommended for such articles as fish hooks, beads, combs, pipes, leather belts, sheath knives, mouth organs, looking glasses, and cotton materials. The description on the invoice of the last name struck me as sounding most unsuitable for natives who wore no undergarments, being mostly transparent materials. I asked what induced them to choose such idiotic materials, to which my brother replied that the flowers on them were so pretty and the colors more harmonious than the calicoes and prints. Steve said that in the pictures, Indian women always swayed themselves in diaphanous draperies, so he imagined it was the correct thing. I decided to visit the wholesale house and return the goods. The boys said at once, how like a woman to give a lot of unnecessary trouble to the wretched shop assistants. But as it was a question of sinking a portion of our small capital in an endeavor to make money for carrying through our enterprise, I spoke to the manager and made the exchange most amicably. Procuring passports and obtaining visas was no joke, and it took so long that only a few days could be spent by my brother in choosing charts, and I finished the purchase of my household linen. For months, I have been buying materials when I saw anything reasonably cheap, and sent them to a dressmaker who had made for me ever since I left school. She had all my measurements, and I used to send a sketch with each batch of material. She would make the dress, all but the finishing touches at her leisure, and then keep it for me to try on later. In that way, one morning's fitting was sufficient for the lot. Of course, I chose simple styles that would allow of this straight down frocks that would be cool and could be worn without corsets the two evening dresses and riding kit were another manner and i had to have those set on devonshire after me i gradually laid in a store of underwear kimonos etc whenever i could afford them and seven or eight pairs of serviceable pajamas with which two or three skirts to match that could be quickly slipped on when making land and one or two thin coats and skirts a good tropical mackintosh a shantung dust coat, boots, shoes, and slippers of every description completed my outfit. With light hearts, we traveled down to Devonshire, where the boys took up a course in navigation, and I tried to imbibe enough knowledge to be some help to them. Unfortunately, I struggled with the subject, and with very little time in which to attend to my department of the ogre, namely scrubbing and cleaning after the workmen, making new curtains and cushion covers, and salting 30 pounds of Devonshire butter, I gave up the struggle and left them to it. Our instructor was a dear old Danish sea captain who took the greatest interest in our enterprise, and with some diffidence we asked if he would accompany us as far as Vigo to put us in the way of things. 
He at once complied, though he had not been at sea for twenty-six years, and it meant leaving his little school of navigation, a comfortable home, and the kindliest wife. She was a remarkable woman, and still young-looking. In the old days, she and the four children always went to sea in the three-masted schooner commanded by her husband. She used to do most of the cooking, repair the sails, men for the crew, and generally mother the ship's company. On one occasion off the coast of Florida, she took the ship into port when the captain and crew were down with Barry Barry. Some way off the coast, a tug came out to salvage them, but she refused to accept their aid, thus saving the owners some thousands of pounds. They were so appreciative that they presented her with a grand piano. She wept. Her husband mentioned this to his company, and they substituted a check for a hundred pounds sterling. Never shall I forget packing away the stores. When I tell you that we took sufficient of most commodities for three months, and of the things that would keep for a six-month supply, you will be able to realize a little what hopeless feeling swept over me when it came to stow them away in so small a space. We went alongside the quay at Brixham, and the carts containing our stuff were back to the edge of it, from whence everything was pitched onto the deck until it seemed piled halfway up the mast with boxes, tins, packing, cases, sacks, and barrels. Of course, it rained, and the wretched provision merchant who accompanied the goods insisted on my checking each item as it was dumped on the deck from above. It was a nightmare trying to get the perishable things below before they were saturated. Luckily, the next morning was fine, so at my leisure I could stow away everything. It meant making a separate list of what went into each locker or cupboard, and against every item putting a number of strokes corresponding to the number of tins or pots as the case might be. Each list was pasted on the inside of its individual locker lid, and the strokes crossed off as the stores were used. By this means, we knew exactly how much of a commodity was left. Then I wrote out a comprehensive list to indicate in which locker or cupboard each kind of food could be found. It may sound simple enough, but it took me two whole days to satisfactorily stow all the stores, for tins had to be fitted into lockers which sloped to the shape of the ship's side. Over and over again, I had to pack and repack those wretched cavities so that all should fit in exactly and nothing shift when we started to roll. Steve offered to hand the commodities as I called for them, but he became so weary of my finickiness, as he called it, that he returned to assist my brother with the work on deck. Several times during our cruise, I patted myself on the back with regard to the same finickiness, as the only mortalities were a jar of jam and a bottle of lime juice whose cork came out and caused the sticky fluid to dribble into a 40-pound sack of brown sugar. One locker was kept for emergency rations in case we had to abandon ship, and this contained ship's biscuits, tin meat, tobacco, cigarettes, and a bottle full of matches. Our emergency breaker was lashed on the port side of the deck, while alongside the key we took 
on 300 gallons of fresh water, which was the limit of our tanks, we arranged that each member of the crew should be allowed three quarters of a gallon per day to be used as he pleased, and the other quarter of a gallon to be used for culinary purposes. It must be mentioned that while attending navigation lessons, the boys conceived the brilliant idea of advertising for a passenger who would pay to be conveyed to the South Seas in a far more original, though less luxurious manner than by steamer. We were loath to break into our friendly trio, but acquisition of ill-gotten gains was an absolute necessity. So we inserted an advertisement in one of the weekly illustrated papers, and the extraordinary letters in reply would fill pages. No mention of remuneration was made in most of them. Several applicants wished to get out of England as it proved an unpleasant country after the war. One lacking both sea experience and money would be willing to work for his passage and board to any country far removed from England. He would have been useful to us as considering we were almost novices ourselves. Another was a great admirer of my brother's South Sea stories. He wanted to study his methods and would be willing to accompany us if we could see our way to supplying his food and kit. My brother's methods consisting in yawning loudly, bewailing the dearth of ideas, and offering me vast sums of money for plots, which I am unable to supply because I did not study navigation. For these reasons, this particular applicant would not have found it a money-making proposition, I am afraid. Several women applied, for the most part through lack of occupation after having worked hard during the war and feeling at loose end. The majority of these offered large sums to accompany us, and my brother thought it would be an excellent idea if I considered one of them. But as I pointed out to him, I did not know a single one of my own friends I would have cared to ask to join us for as much as I should have liked the congenial companionship. I thought it required a special brand of woman for the job in hand. I don't for a moment wish to intimate that I consider myself a paragon in any way, but as I had done something of the sort before, though in a much smaller way, I knew the drawbacks that would confront a woman who started with the idea of having a lovely time. To begin with, it requires excellent health, also more muscular strength than is ordinary to the average girl. I am thankful to say I possess both of these, for I have been keen on gymnastics, mountain climbing, riding, etc., ever since I was a kitty. During the war, I was employed in manual labor of a rather strenuous description. Another thing is, the life aboard so small a ship as the Ogre entails a very intimate, some would say immodest associations with the other sex. For example, more than once, if all hands on deck was shouted, it was my job to dash to the tiller and to keep the ship on her course. Whoever had been below was probably clothed in nothing but a towel owing to the great heat, and when rushing on to deck to help, his exertions might deprive him of even that. Again, the least exacting woman expects certain little courtesies which it would be impossible to accord under the circumstances. That is why I made a stipulation with the boys that they should treat me like a man while on board and that we should all work exactly alike as regarded the daily routine. Added to this, there was the possibility that the lady might weary of such conditions lasting for months and perhaps years, for we had no idea how long our cruise would last, and wished to leave us 
in which case it would be impossible to dump her alone at even a civilized port, much less on some South Sea island. To continue to carry an unwilling victim was not to be contemplated at any price. Thus, it was that which caused me to think that none of my intimates was suited to our undertaking. I vetoed the idea of carrying a perfect stranger, even though she were willing to pay a small fortune for the doubtful privilege. The only really satisfactory answer to the advertisement came from an old yachtsman who had just retired from business and hearkened to the call of adventure at the age of 63. He ran down to Devonshire to inspect the yacht and crew, and incidentally to be inspected himself. With mutual satisfaction, he slept the night aboard and left after arranging to become our passenger as far as Tahiti Society Islands. If he wished to continue the motion to Australia, could do so by paying an additional sum. He told us he could not leave by the date we meant to sail, so would go by steamer to Grand Canary, where we could pick him up at Las Palmas on a given date. This was met with great joy on my part, as I knew I could continue to occupy my berth in the cabin and not have to turn out for a few weeks longer. For, of course, being a passenger, we had to give him the best of everything. We arranged that he and Steve should share the sleeping cabin, and my brother and I would share the forecastle. The bunks were all equally comfortable, being supplied with spring mattresses under the horsehair ones, but I loved my side of the cabin and had fixed it up so that I had a place for everything. That is very necessary thing on any craft, I should imagine, but far more so on a small yacht. A place for everything and everything in its right place, my brother, is naturally very tidy for a man. But Steve, poor old chap, how he suffered at our hands. He really did improve, though. I think he discovered that by stowing things neatly, he could find them more easily when he wanted. Also, he found that when things are not rolling all over the place, they were less damaged. The day came for us to sail. We had arranged, if the wind was favorable, to leave our mooring early on Sunday morning in order to have as few spectators as possible. It was well known in a little fishing village like Brixham what we contemplated doing. We were thankful afterwards that we had taken this precaution, for our getaway was anything but clean. Our old captain came aboard at 5.30 sharp, bringing with him a corrugated iron dustbin in which he had salted our beef. This was stowed below in a lazarette under the floorboards of the forecastle and wedged into place with reserved tins of petrol. Then we proceeded to haul in the dinghy, in letting it down to the deck from the bulwarks. The stern end of the keel fell on the poor old captain's big toe. He bore it stoically and said very little at the time, but later on it swelled alarmingly, and he was afraid it was broken. When I demonstrated that he could move it at will, he was somewhat reassured. When the dinghy was at last in position on the starboard side of the deck, Steve, by mistake, sat heavily on one of the skylights, and it closed with a bang crushing one of his fingers badly. The bone was intact, but little else was. For weeks, it was exceedingly painful. Eventually, the nail came off completely, and his finger will always be out of shape at the top. Our next 
task was to hoist sail and let go our moorings but our mooring cable fouled the buoy and in getting free we barged into a fishing smack we swung round so that our bowsprit collided with the shrouds of the other vessel every instant we expected the bowsprit to snap as there was a pretty stiff breeze at the time and the strain must have been tremendous cursing never helped any my lads said the captain when he heard what steve and my brother could do in that particular line we sailed with a steady northwest wind and bowled along finally until it became so fresh that we lowered the topsail before night came on valiantly the captain stuck to the tiller though he suffered considerably from seasickness he arranged that he and steve should take six-hour watch from twelve to six and my brother and i from six to twelve it required two on deck as the weather became rather nasty and on our third night out it blew half a gale the two below when off watch had no slack time either as things we thought satisfactorily lashed came adrift the oil tank which was on a stout rack in the engine room broke its fastings and lurched almost on the engine it was impossible to shift it back into place as the weight of fifty gallons of oil plus the tank itself was beyond our strength so we wedged it with planks the washstand in the cabin also broke from its staples and pitched sideways carrying with it the thirty-pound drum of oatmeal which stood beside it as the only possible place to stow such a bulky article the water tank in the forecastle whose lid had been imperfectly screwed down slopped waves of our precious water on the floor and this ran in picturesque waterfalls over the step into the saloon where it was allowed to remain in a pond mixing with brine which for the last two days had been oozing from a case of pickled pork wedged under the table this conglomeration soaked round the edges of the oilcloth and through the floorboards into the bilge a little dampness more or less was a matter of indifference to us just then by the following night the wind had died down but the sea remained high and we rolled to such an extent that our boom smashed about six feet from the end great consternation on our part but the captain remained unmoved although it nearly brained him and most of the mainsail went overboard as it was a black dark night the skipper thought we had better leave closer inspection until daylight so we lowered the mainsail and hoisted the square sail as the wind was sufficiently aft to allow of it i must explain that this square sail was rigged on a yard twenty-five feet long that travelled on the jackstay up the mast and was a perfect godsend to us with a good stick breeze aft it bowled us along at about eight knots if the wind was variable but mostly not too much on the beam we could square it round to act as a mainsail and so save changing sails too often which becomes a great labor when the spars are as heavy as ours where when crew consists of such lightweights as respective ten stone ten stone and three pounds and eight stone and two pounds editor's note 
one stone is 14 pounds, that would put their weights at 140 pounds, 143 pounds, and 114 pounds, respectively. I assume those were the weights of Ralph, Steve, and the author. If the breeze was very light, a bonnet or additional strip of sail could be laced on the bottom. Why it should not have been at the top, I don't know, considering its name. The next morning, at daylight, we inspected the damage and found we were able to take a double reef in the mainsail and make the cringle fast to the broken end of the boom. We sighted the coast of Spain just as the job was finished. From then on, the wind died down until midday, when my brother, who amongst other things was an engineer, had to start up the engine. After lunch, the others turned in for much-needed rest, and I took charge until tea time. The sensation of slowly gliding along a level keel in the warm sunshine was a perfect joy after the bucketing we had been through. To me, there is nothing that makes one feel so thoroughly tired all through as being pitched about for any length of time at sea. Just as it was getting dark, we reached the mouth of the Vigo River, and once again the engine was in requisition in order to take us to the town of Vigo, which is on the left bank. Of course, we could see none of the scenery, but here and there twinkling lights appeared where villages nestled close to the water. At last, a most imposing cluster came into view, so we knew we had made our first port in safety. We let go the anchor at 1.30 a.m., put up the riding light, turned in utterly weary, and we were very thankful to have level bunks. Chapter 2. Courtship Under Difficulties. Exit the Captain. We Three and the Ogre. Modes of Waking and Keeping Awake. Los Palmas. We Engage a Cook canary fever our intention was to sleep late in order to make up for what we had lost but soon after five a m we were disturbed by two men coming aboard to see what they could sell us in the way of stores and wine we roundly cursed them and said all we wanted was sleep either they were slow of understanding or else steve's halting spanish of which he had picked up a smattering years ago in south america sounded worse to them than it did to us they smilingly seated themselves on the forecastle hatch and started rolling cigarettes and chatting to each other in voices that could be heard ashore no sooner had we made them understand that they were not wanted and bowed them politely into their boat than the port official came aboard to see our ship's papers after that it was useless to try and sleep so we cleaned up the ship and incidentally ourselves and went ashore vigo is a charming town it was built on a steep slope above the river with a beautiful view of the opposite bank about two miles away some of the old parts of the town with steep and narrow streets are exceedingly picturesque and the market is quite one of the sights our old captain was dressed in thick serge clothes and i presume wore flannel next to his skin for he felt the heat terribly his toe gave him great trouble as the streets were made of cobblestones and most of the pavements were very uneven we had suggested that he should go ashore in slippers never dreaming they would be of the carpet variety and bright colors at that however no one stared at him unduly and if they had i think he would have been oblivious our first business was to cable the captain's old woman of our safe arrival and to book a return passage for him 
At last we succeeded in getting a berth on a boat sailing in a week's time, which was a great blow to him, as he was anxious to return to his pupils as soon as possible. However, I think he put in a pleasant time in Vigo, in spite of yearnings for home, a sore toe, and unsuitable underclothing. Most of the day he preferred to wander up the river in the dinghy, sit on deck and read, or do odd jobs about the ship. He also advised my brother about repairing our damaged boom. In the evening we often took him to the Almada, a public place planted with trees and shrubs, and with chairs and seats dotted about. Here all the rank and fashion of Vigo repaired in the cool of the evening to stroll about and chat with friends to the accompaniment of a good band. What struck us most was the charming little children. Many of the tiny girls were miniature fashion plates, wearing beautiful silks and muslins, laundered in the most wonderful manner. There the simile ended, for they were absolutely unaffected and without the slightest self-consciousness. They would sway and dance to the music in the manner that would have been ridiculous in English children. At first it struck us that the flappers had rather a thin time of it, for as a rule one youth would be at the center of the bevy of girls. A friend who accompanied us one evening explained that Spanish etiquette forbade a girl to be alone at any time with one of the opposite sex. So girls took in turns to chaperone each other, and if they had any sense, would go about in numbers so the gooseberries could indulge in noisy conversation in order to drown the young couple's murmured words. It seems that when a young man desires to marry a certain girl, he has to spend months in making love at the distance. We saw one couple doing this in the open street. The senorita was leaning from the second floor balcony, gazing down at a man standing below. He was obliged to take up his position in the center of the road in order to get a good view of his love. Traffic made not the slightest difference. He just stepped into the gutter or back to the other side of the road. He never ceased the eloquent movements of his fingers and hands, which had to take the place of spoken words, and seemed quite comprehensible to the girl who responded in like manner. Passers-by took not the slightest notice, but I should think we stood for nearly ten minutes watching proceedings until the lady saw us. Catching my brother's eye, she smiled and waved a hand. He naturally responded with a sweeping bow, whereupon the lover wheeled round to see the cause of that radiant smile and scowled in a manner one associates with a melodramatic villain. Steve was most annoyed and told my brother such things were not done in Spain. When a lover has quite made up his mind that he has found the one and only girl, he approaches her parents. If they consent to the match, the youth has real hard work and an expensive time in store, for whenever he takes his girl out for a motor drive to the theater or concert, not only the mother or sister chaperones her, but the entire family. I must not omit to mention that we engaged an awful-looking ruffian called Tonio as watchman to look after the ogre when we all went ashore and to row us to and from the quay. Although he was recommended by the port official, he proved anything but satisfactory, but he did afford 
afford us much amusement. When he rowed us ashore, having deposited us on the quay, he would paddle the dinghy a little way out because boats were not allowed to remain alongside. He then would lie down on the seat with one cushion under his head and another in the small of his back and fall asleep. There he would repose until our return, when shouting and pelting him with stones utterly failed to rouse him. Nothing short of one of his countrymen going out and rocking the dinghy until he rolled off the seat would bring him back to consciousness. One day his cap, an awful affair of bright blue plush, fell into the water during his slumbers. With an ingratiating smile showing awful gaps between discolored teeth, he asked my brother to replace it as it was lost in his service. Frequently, while in town, we would see Tonio slinking into a wine shop when he ought to have been minding our dinghy and keeping an eye on the ogre. We were told to leave nothing unguarded, as everything, however small and insignificant, was valuable in the eyes of the waterside folk. The British colony at Vigo treated us with the greatest kindness, and boys had some excellent tennis at the bachelor's quarters of the Eastern Cable Company. Very often the bachelors came off to bathe from the deck of the ogre, stay to tea, and afterwards we would have a sing-song on deck, with me perspiring at the piano below. One evening we were motoring out to a little place called Cabral, and dined beneath vines which were trained up square stone pillars. The British consul invited us to lunch, and we reciprocated by asking him aboard to dinner. This entailed great preparations, as he did not leave until late. We were still washing up at 1.30 a.m. As time passed, it borne in upon us that our 100 pounds of salt pork under the saloon table was a frost, or rather a thaw. It still continued to exude brine, so we opened up the case and found such an appalling-looking mess that we decided to try to dicker with the gentleman who had disturbed our slumbers on the morning after our arrival. We therefore bade Tonio fetch them aboard, and we suggested that we were willing to sacrifice some good English pork for the sake of ten gallons of vino tinto, the vin ordinaire of the country. They fell over each other to row ashore and fetch the wine which we emptied into one of our water breakers it proved very good until it went sour some four or five days later so much for the pork and brine that it cost us a good round sum in england we decided to sail early the morning of the day the captain's steamer left we were astir before dawn and having breakfasted weighed anchor this was pretty hard work as there is deep water just off the town and we were thankful to have the captain's assistance we motored alongside the wharf and deposited the captain in his suitcase thereon our farewells had already been said and it was with tears in his eyes that he wished us good luck i do not know what the boy's tealings were i could have howled when we chugged away down the river leaving that lonely old man with his suitcase standing on the quay shouting last instructions to us i knew we should miss his moral and physical support to say nothing of his cheery good nature if we should find ourselves in any fix if i had given way to my feelings i fear that the tail end of the howl would have been for ourselves it may be remembered that it was dark when we made our way 
up the Vigo River a week before. Going down at sunrise was a treat that I am glad we did not miss. The boys had to continually tell me to get a move on as I stood looking at the lovely surroundings instead of getting down to work. We now arranged the watches so that each had four hours on and eight off, and that the cooking should be done in shifts of a week each. Of course, it made rather hard work for the wretched individual whose job it was to do the chores, but with only three, no other way seemed possible. Each Sunday night, we changed watches in order to vary the times on duty. Since I could not help with the navigation, I took on all the lamps and brass cleaning to try to equalize matters. On reaching the mouth of the Vigo River, we hoisted sail. As there was a fresh breeze from the north-northwest, we were well out of sight of land before midday. When I took the tiller, Steve dived below to start in with his first attempt at cooking. I had undertaken that duty during the captain's regime. The wind held during the day, died away at sunset, but revived again after dark. I started my 12 to 4 a.m. night watch, wishing it were safely over. Although I was not actually nervous, I felt a sense of responsibility in handling the ogre quite alone for the first time. My brother was most decent in telling me not to mind calling him if I at all felt doubtful what to do. Luckily, everything went smoothly, and all I had to do was sit on the side of the steering wheel and hold the ogre on her course. I was too new to feel at all sleepy that night, but later on, all of us suffered agonies of drowsiness during our night watches. The mere fact of keeping one's eyes fixed on the swinging compass card, brightly lighted by the binnacle lamps, while all else was in darkness, gave one a sort of hypnotized feeling that was very difficult to shake off. We had broken rest during successive nights and found it was seldom possible to catch up on sleep in the daytime. In the morning, we compared notes as to different means that we adopted to keep wake. Steve used to go through all the poetry he could remember, then try to say it backwards. My brother alternately prodded himself with the marlin spike and racked his brains for plots. I used to talk to my relations and friends one by one, resolutely visualize them, and hold imaginary conversations with each. After that, I would go through my repertoire of songs. Then I would decide what kind of puddings I could devise out of the ship's stores for my next week's cooking. We found strong coffee very helpful, and whoever was cook used to make far more than would be required for breakfast each morning, and he or she would save it for use at night. At first, we had an alarm clock which each set at the time for the next man to go on watch but this became rusted in the damp atmosphere of the tropics the man on watch had to go down and rouse the next victim sometimes this caused a rude awakening if there were any kind of sea running it meant pegging the tiller dashing down the engine room ladder shaking the sleeper and rushing back sometimes the watch returned just in time to save a jibe one day we discussed our different modes of waking my brother always heaved a huge sigh opened his eyes halfway his mouth in full cavernous yawn and said how's she going then sometimes he fell promptly to sleep again without waiting for a reply with steve it was as well to keep one's distance for he had a nasty way of hitting out sometimes he would cover with his own hand that 
touched him and press it fervently, then realize what was expected of him and murmur, Right-o! My brother said, I always laid with my mouth wide open and my face all on one side. When I was roused, these returned to their normal positions, and there it ended, which sounds dull and extremely unattractive. Seven days out from Vigo, we sighted Madeira, just where it ought to be. Great excitement and congratulations were exchanged because it must be remembered that this was the first test of the amateur navigators. After seeing nothing but two steamers and a few seagulls for a week, the sight of land was very welcome. It gave us a sense of security for the future because the theoretical lessons in navigation seemed to hold good when put into practice. Two days later, we sighted the Salvage Islands, a couple of small islands surrounded by rocks. No one lives there, but Portuguese fishermen go at certain seasons to salt down their catches. The islands swarm with rabbits, so one would not starve if wrecked there, but as there is practically no fresh water, one would have an unpleasant time. Passing the islands within two miles or so, we held on. On the next day, when sights were taken, we thought we had lost our bearings because we did not sight the Canary Islands for some time. However, just before sunset, we saw the peak of Tenerife above the mist on the horizon. We slowed down as much as possible during the night. At daylight, we erected the staff with the blue ensign, hoisted our burgee and the pilot flag, and made for Grand Canary, reaching Las Palmas around noon. The pilot came out to meet us, and I steered at his direction, while my brother strove in the engine room, and Steve stood by to heave the anchor overboard. Before we entered the harbor, crafts of all sorts came out to see what curious specimen had drifted to their coast. The bum boatmen were the greatest nuisance for. They clambered aboard without invitation and started crying their wares in bad Spanish and broken English, intermingled with a smattering of Hindustani. Look, beautiful lady, beautiful silks from India, very nice, very good, very much. Cheap fruit, fresh fruit, make don feel good laundry man senor good laundry wash white wash stiff never dirty any more we took absolutely no notice of them as we were far too busy occupied with our respective jobs i was scared to death lest i should run down boats and agents tugs that nipped across our bows as the pilot pulled up forward and waved an inexorable arm in whichever direction i was to steer I left the responsibility to him. We threaded our way through schooners, coal barges, and steamers until we cast anchor just off the Club Nautico. Then, when the pilot heard we had come from England, he solemnly shook us each by the hand, told us the police and doctor would soon be aboard, and left his launch, promising to come and have tea one afternoon and hear of our adventures. The police came with great pomp, two rotund gentlemen who looked like field marshals, one with an enormously long sword, which, by mistake, he left behind. They told us to run up the international signal flag, P. After that, if we were molested, we should be at the liberty to shoot anyone who ventured on board. I must say the flag proved effective, for no one attempted to come over the gangway until we asked them. After buying some cheap fruit and telling the laundryman to call the following morning we tidied up washed down decks had a meal and tumbled into our bunks we slept soundly until the man came for our laundry at about eight o'clock the next morning i did not think any one could call las palmas 
either beautiful or interesting. There is one singular feature about it, the hills at the back, which are formed through sand being blown over the Sahara Desert, stretch over a distance of a hundred miles. The heat was intense while we were there, but we fared far better under our awning, the square sail, than those on shore. We had put in several weeks while waiting for our passenger and were rather at loose end. We had made up our minds not to be bothered with cooking, so engaged an old Maltese named Rianco, who spoke English and had worked in the same capacity of all sorts of vessels. He proved a blessing as he cooked extremely well, undertook the shopping, and rowed us to and from the shore. No one knows the relief that we felt in having meals well prepared and nicely served without consideration for the number of utensils and implements used. This state of bliss lasted for nearly three weeks until Brianco failed to return one Sunday night after his evening out. We waited for three days, then arranged to have joints cooked at a small restaurant ashore and sent aboard. I must give the old scamp his due and say that 30 pesetas, which my brother had given him, failing smaller change to do the shopping with, was returned through the painter, who was beautifying the top sides of the ogre. Unfortunately, our chef was lost to us forever, as he sent word that he was too ashamed to return after going on without leave and was afraid it might occur again. We sometimes dined at the Club Nautico after this, but it was an expensive luxury we could not indulge in often. Besides, there was a roulette table at the club which lured us to ruin. It was hard not to finish up an evening by doing a splash, which invariably ended disastrously. There is a horrible form of dysentery at Las Palmas called canary fever. Steve was the first First to go down as he had a weakness for that sort of thing. He was really ill with it. I came next and my brother last. It made us feel so weak that we decided to go to Fergus, a village in the hills. Steve would not budge. I think really he felt too limp to face the three and a half hours shaking in a public motor omnibus, or else the roulette was just too great an attraction. Anyhow, he elected to stay aboard. My brother and I took suitcases and caught the motor to Fergus, arriving about six o'clock in the evening. The scenery was certainly worth seeing, as it was so unusual. The road led up through the sand hills until we came to a rugged red rocks and earth over which a winding track led to the heights in the interior of Grand Canary. Aloes and cactus were in abundance, the latter most covered with the cochineal beetle, which was attracted to the cactus by a sort of film like spider's web, giving the effect of a blight. We arrived at the Fonda at about 6 p.m. It was filled with a noisy crowd of youngsters and a few elderly people. The only vacant sleeping accommodations was a room with two small beds in it, and this led out of the salon. There, the evening was spent in noisy games and dancing up until a late hour. No mosquito nets were provided, and I had a return of canary fever. On the next morning at 7 o'clock, we packed up and took our departure for Las Palmas and the Ogre, where quiet and solitude at least could be obtained. We found Steve in a bed at 11 o'clock, reading and smoking. All he said when he saw us was what was how was the and good lord we made rather an interesting acquaintance of the portuguese who assisted three royalists to escape from prison on madeira they had been sent from portugal owing 
to their political views. Having a good seagoing yacht, our friends smuggled them on board one night and made for Las Palmas without stores, water, or ship's instruments, being afraid of attracting attention. They were all interned at Las Palmas when we arrived. One afternoon, the pilot turned up to tea and brought with him a married son with wife, baby, and nurse, three other men and two women whom I never placed, and another son. The latter announced the fact that since he was a music professor, he would come to play our piano. This he proceeded to do, displaying more energy than skill. In a tiny space like our saloon, the din was simply stunning. Steve, who is stone deaf in one ear owing to artillery fire during the war, shifted his position so that the defective organ should be the nearest the infliction. I crept into the forecastle to prepare tea. My brother, who has a very acute ear for music, was wedged between the two senoritas who listened without flinching to the volley of sound being pounded from the keys of our poor little piano. Luckily, we had it tuned a day or two before. The tuner was a pretty little man with a tiny white hands and a dear little black mustache and a girlish smile. He came aboard very gingerly and descended the forecastle ladder in fear and trembling, hanging on as if the ogre were rolling heavily. His exit was a sheer disaster. We were having the deck and topsides painted and had told him when coming aboard to be careful where he placed his hands and feet. I was on deck when he left, and as he stepped from the forecastle hatch, bowing his farewells to me, he slipped on the wet paint and, in a sitting position, glissated into the scuppers. A leak in the stern of the ogre had been worrying us for some days and was at last located by my brother as being between the stern tube of the engine and the ship's timbers. It was decided that we should have to go on the slips, which was accordingly done at some expense, but no inconvenience as we remained aboard. It must have been during that time that a rat came to live with us. We borrowed some traps from a friendly schooner captain and set them all. One was a, like a rabbit trap with teeth. Another was a big wire cage with the door that dropped when the bait was touched. The third was just an ordinary mousetrap of the back-breaking variety. It was the last that did the trick, but it only caught the poor beast by the nose, and it was the noise of the rat ramping around the saloon with the trap hanging to its face that woke me. I called the boys. After trying to string round the legs of our pajamas, we got all sorts of implements and ran the culprit to earth against the washstand and behind the oatmeal barrel case in the cabin. There it was beaten to death, a sight that made me feel quite sick. So if you want to take advantage of the free day, that's January 3rd, 2019, Pacific Time, UTC, negative 8. If you act fast, then you're going to get a lower price, so don't delay. The book's on Amazon, Sailing the Ogre, and if you want to the audiobook make the five dollar pledge at patreon.com slash sailing. it's a limited time offer while supplies last have some fun on the water my name is linus wilson till february 2019 goodbye hi i'm Jana wilson thank you for listening to the slow boat sailing podcast subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com